Good morning, everyone. My name is Devin. I am. Uh, I was asked by the pastoral team to speak this morning as part of our Postures of the People series. I'm a local woodworker in the city slash stay-at-home dad most of the time. Um, yeah, it's good times. I am. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, it's been a good series so far. I don't know if you've been following along the whole way. And it's been very good. I'm very excited to be a part of it. I'm just hoping not to mess it up too much this morning. Uh, so far, we've looked at postures of adoration, service. Uh, I'm going to have to look at my notes. Vulnerability and protection. I thought I was going to get through them. I've been asked to talk about a posture of blessing based on the stories of the triumphant entry and the cleansing of the temple. Because it's Palm Sunday, yay. I've always liked Palm Sunday. There's something about, I don't know, the energy of the room or the stories, the positivity about this event that I've always really liked, which again, I'm hoping not to mess up too badly this morning. But what I wanted to do is just get right into this and just kind of start with something totally random and seemingly unconnected to the material I'm supposed to cover because, well, you asked me to come up here today and that's what you get. So, let me ask you a question. Did you ever do opposite day, right? Did you ever do opposite day when you were a kid? I think it was something that was generally supposed to be around April Fool's, which was yesterday, so yeah, it's not random. I planned it, I totally planned that when I wrote this, it's all good. I loved Opposite Day when I was a kid, and it was something that usually came up when we were caught in a lie, right? Why did you steal my Lego? I didn't steal your Lego, why would I do that? I would never do something like that. Why would you accuse me of stealing Lego? I can see you holding my Lego in your hand right now. <laughs> I, it's Opposite Day, so I didn't lie because it's opposite of what I said, Lego. A little trick on how my brain works. This is just my crazy kind of thinking. If it's opposite day, and I say it is opposite day, does that mean that it's not opposite day? Here, last little bit on this, I promise. I remember this one time when I was a kid, and I just got really into it. I'm backwards hat, backpack like hanging from my tummy, walking from the school to the van where my mom is picking me up, just like, like all, all sorts of alterations all over my clothes and everything. To answer your two questions, yes, I was picked on as a kid. And two, I was like 15 when that happened. No, I was like seven, I don't remember. The point is that this whole opposite day kind of thinking is actually a lot closer to the way Jesus taught than you might think, which might sound kind of ridiculous, but it, it's actually there. He, he loved to kind of go at the opposite and turn it around and do a different thing. And the greatest example of this is Matthew 5, 1 to 10, I think. And again, I'm supposed to be covering something totally different, so I'm going to try to fly through these pretty quick. But... As I always say when I'm up here, don't worry, I am going somewhere with this. We'll just have to fly, fly through this quick. So Matthew 5, 1 to 10, you might be familiar. 
So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there's been just an incredible amount of material written about these sayings, all of them trying to figure out this one thing. Why would Jesus say such ridiculous stuff? And it is, right? It it is completely off the walls ridiculous. Most of what Jesus said is actually kind of ridiculous if you look at it. Not my fault. You know, he's just, he's just that kind of guy. I, I mean, you can pour into these things and you see the way that he's intentionally saying the opposite or the counter to exactly the way that we know things work in the world. Right, you just look at the first one. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. No. Right? Who does the kingdom belong to? The rich. We know that. That's how the world works. The rich use their money to gain power and influence over the kingdom or empire or whatever it is that they're a part of in order to gain control. And they have the kingdom. The rich have it, not the poor. That's why Jesus said the opposite. Get it? Not yet. You look at a couple more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will find comfort. You know who's comfortable? People who don't have to mourn, right? Jesus said the opposite, because that's what makes sense in his way of seeing the world, and his way of going about things. You see it all over the place. Um, Blessed are the, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Wrong. You know who inherits the earth? The powerful, right? Read literally any history textbook that's ever been written. They'll take their army and they'll take what they want. And then they inherit, conquer, the earth. And it becomes theirs. And their little thing to use and whatever they want, they want to use it. The meek don't conquer the earth. They don't pass it on. They don't inherit the things that are to come. One more, one more. Blessed are the peacemakers. That one's my favorite, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, sometimes translated to children of God. I'll say sons here, and you'll see why in a second. Because in the ancient world, there's actually lots of sons of a God or sons of a God. Lots of Pharaoh was a son of a God. Caesar was a son of a God. Just about any monarch or monarch-type figure or ruler was a son of a god, especially in that area of the ancient world. Now, how did they become son of a god? How did they come to a place where they can have so much power and authority in some way that they can say, oh yeah, I'm like from divine ancestry, and that's why I deserve this. That's what they do. They would justify themselves. They would do that through violence, right? Caesar brought what's called the Pax Romana to the known world, the peace of Rome, by slaughtering 
untold amounts of people, you know? Peace, <laughs> for some, that's how he did it. In Jesus' day, to say you are a son of God is to say that you are a person of high stature through violence and terror. That's what it means. And Jesus says, no, no. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are the sons of God, the children of God. It's completely counter to and in complete opposite and opposition to the exact way that we know the world to work. And it gives us what some Christian traditions have called the upside-down kingdom of God. And that's how Jesus saw the world, and that's how Jesus understood it, and that's what he wanted to put in our heads. There's the way the world works, and then there's this other thing. And I want you to try this other thing. This way the world works thing hasn't worked for a while. <laughs> Let's try something else. Now, getting to the point, I couldn't get this out of my head. You, you might think, well, he's supposed to be talking about a posture of blessing. Talking about the Beatitudes that use the word blessed like a hundred times makes sense. I honestly didn't make that connection until this morning. <laughs> I was practicing through this message earlier. Here's what happened to me, is that as I started to think, what is a posture of blessing? What does it mean to prepare, to want, to bless the world as, as individuals, as a church, as a group here? What does it mean to actually prepare ourselves and get ready to bless, to take a posture of blessing? And I couldn't get this idea out of my head, this very opposite and counter way of doing things. And I got this line. Blessed are those who have nothing, for they can truly give. Now, it's not in there. Now, don't put the slides back up and look for it. Don't open your Bibles. The line isn't there. I know that. Blessed are those who have nothing, for they can truly give. But I have to ask you this. Does that ring true in any way in your head? Because to me, it sounds a lot like Jesus. Because we know who can give, right? We know how the world works. Who is able to give, right? Those who have. Those who have the most, they're able to give the most. People who have the most money, people who have the most land, people who have the most livestock, right? People who are abled, people who are attractive. <laughs> Didn't know what kind of reaction I'd get to that. <laughs> the people who have the most are able to give the most. And based on everything I've said so far, you might see why I suddenly become suspicious of this. But you know what? I'm not going to pretend that I don't agree with that, right? People who have should give, right? That's the way it works. People who have should give. It's important for justice. It's important for equality. It's important for peacemaking. People who have should give. But we shouldn't fall into this trap of thinking that those who give have, those who have, have the most to give because one, it, it would claim that money is the highest virtue, and two, it would claim that the poor have nothing to offer in blessing. And we do have to start to rethink our idea. What does it mean to prepare ourselves to give if material giving isn't what actually matters? And I want to make this clear. I think material giving is important. 
I think charity, compassion, giving, and doing ministry as a church is is incredibly important. I, I've seen it as a priority here at Elevation. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to come here. We, we didn't think we could come to a church that didn't have that as a priority. But there's also something deeper going on here. What I'm going to suggest is that a posture of blessing, the preparation to bless, what Jesus wants us to take on as a true nature of going out to bless the world is not charity, but solidarity. And we're going to get in that to explain it a little further as we go. But a posture of blessing isn't about a desire to give materially, but a desire to stand beside people in their distress. Those who have nothing are blessed for they can truly give. So, that being said, I'm going to give the pastoral staff a sigh of relief and get into what we're actually supposed to talk about this morning. So let's look at Matthew 21. Can you get it up? Matthew 21, yeah, 1 to 14. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, I think, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Two major stories that are happening right here. Jesus enters the city and he goes to the temple and prepares it in the cleansing two different, connected, and important stories. You know, there's a lot going on with this ride-in, with, with the donkey, with the cloaks, with the branches, with the song, with the, 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 the whole thing. It, 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 it's a lot to pour into and go into. What's important to note from it all right now is that it's obvious the author is not just trying to give us a story of Jesus entering the city, but of God returning into the city and of God coming to the temple. And there's a lot of imagery that brings us to this very nature of Jesus' divinity and the, the incarnation in general. And this is important because when you get into the incarnation of, of God being a part of and one with Jesus, there is an incredible act of solidarity in that alone that should be noted in a message like this. God 
in some way giving up part or being in himself. I, I, I can't possibly understand this or describe this way smarter people have tried. But in some way, God coming to our level and becoming human and experiencing life as we are, the, the very presence of Christ on earth is an act of solidarity of God with humanity. He comes and he is with us and experiences these things with us. He stands beside us. We get to the temple itself, not like the Roman government's office, not the Sanhedrin, not these big important places, but a different big important place, the absolute center of Jewish life, the place that centers them as a separate people. And he comes into this place, he, what's called, cleanses the temple by kicking out all the people trying to take advantage financially of the worshipers, and in a way cleanses this temple to prepare it for what it should be. Which begs a question, what is it supposed to be? Right, what is the temple supposed to be in the first place? Well, I wanna take a look at a before and after hopes of what the temple was supposed to be. If you look at Isaiah 56, it has this, these I will bring into my holy mountain. The these in this, I should note, are foreigners who have bound themselves to the Lord. Earlier in the chapter, it talks all about this. Give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel would gather still others to them besides those already gathered. The images are repeated over and over again. All these different kinds of people, all these different kinds of nations coming together, bring them together, and you get this image of the temple of God's people being there side by side with people of every other nation who are side by side with people of every other nation. If you jump way ahead in the biblical story, the physical temple's actually been destroyed at this point, but Revelation 21 has this beautiful image in it, and I know what Revelation is like, just Try to follow me on this. It says, it's talking in this point about a city that's come down from heaven, literally given the image of, of heaven now being placed on earth. It says, I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb and its lamp the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations we brought into it. Again here, you have this language over and over again of, of the different kings and the different nations all being brought and you have this sense of hope that one day all these nations will be able to come together and stand side by side. And what does that look like? Solidarity. You know, there's this common story looking at scripture throughout to note that God's people are being formed in order to bless the world. But it's actually, we get this idea that you have these people and they become great and then they can shower their blessings on the world. But over and over we get this language, come together and once the nations are side by side, once everyone is there worshiping together, then there will be blessing. Because blessing, a 
posture of blessing is in that act of solidarity. Just trying to grab where my place is here now. (laughs) Posture of blessing is in solidarity rather than charity. We often get this sense. We can't have a posture of blessing that is above others and kind of bringing down our our great wisdom or, or in front of people, but beside them. There's the icon for blessing here. The two hands, I think. Help me, Amel. This is the last one? Yeah, the one on the bottom. The two hands being out. I like to take that image not as the one person offering the blessing, but as two people side by side. And I know the thumbs are pointing in the wrong direction. Don't give me a hard time. Come on. But this is important because an act of solidarity is always an act of blessing. But an act of charity, when it's given out of obligation or even worse, a sense of superiority, that can be damaging. And you know what? It can do good. You know, people can give money or, or a building or do the most charitable things they can think of for the worst possible reasons, and it can still do good. That can happen. I think the calling for us is to go beyond that and maybe start from a place in the heart that says, no, we're with you side by side, and that brings us something deeper. Some examples. If I've got time, I can't see a clock anywhere. And, okay. <laughs> so I've talked about this before um, in previous messages. I can try to come at it from a different angle, but I'm not trying to like beat a dead horse with this one. We've been involved with a, with a ministry doing a meal in the downtown of the Ray Hope Community Center for, for a long time. It started with a small group way back in the day, and then we were the church plant. That organization took over the ministry, and now it's just kind of us, some family doing it. So I get to go grocery shopping with my sister once a month, and then we cook for like 120 people. (laughs) It's a good time. And I've learned a lot in the sense of this experience, and I think the biggest aspect of growth has been simply becoming more and more uncomfortable with the barriers that come up in a ministry like that. And if you've been involved, you might know what I'm talking about, right? We go in, we go... We hang up our coats in the room that the guests aren't allowed to go into. And you go in the kitchen and you cook there and the guests aren't allowed in there. And then you serve them from behind this plexiglass wall. Right? There's just a lot of separation. And you could do an entire meal without ever once talking to anyone. I became more and more and more uncomfortable with the reality of this over the years. And relatively early on, I think, came up with a couple of important ways of how to break down these barriers and stand in solidarity with these people instead. One of those ways I'm not going to talk about right now, and I will, you know, if you're very curious, you can ask me about it later. But the other one is actually the most important, very simple. Take a meal and go out in the dining hall and sit down and talk with them. Right? It's not groundbreaking stuff. It's not a huge kind of thing. You sit there and you get to know people, eating the same food they're eating, sitting at the same table that they're eating. Like I talk about standing in solidarity with people. You can sit in solidarity too. That's, that's fine. And as I would hear their stories, as I would 
play pool or play cards with people and just sit and do life in some small little way, those walls would start to break down. And that is what solidarity does. Solidarity coupled with compassion is just an absolutely beautiful thing. That gives dignity, power, and love in the, in the complete act. And that's what brings it beyond an act of charity that builds up walls in a superior or obligatory kind of way. I'm going to skip one here. Um, last spring, I was sitting in a campfire with a couple of friends from the neighborhood, you know, just, just talking, simple thing. I'm going to try to keep this relatively anonymous. might get a little confusing. So my friend was talking about his other friend who lived in Hamilton or something like that. Just, just, just follow me on this. So his, my friend's friend had just had a baby who, for reasons, was in the hospital for weeks. And the mother and him were just, you know, it's an awful situation, as you might think. You're trying to figure things out. You're trying to be there as much as possible. And someone finally convinced them, you know, you got you to get out for a little while. Like, being in the hospital this long, it's not doing you any good. You got to go. You got to do something. So they went for a bike ride. And while on the bike ride, he gets hit by a car and ends up in a different hospital. And so now he can't see the baby at all, and she's stuck with... He's here, baby's here, what do I do? And I'm going to break in right now, they're all fine. <laughs> That's not what's important to the story right now. What's important is we're sitting around the campfire, and my friend is sharing this, and it's just like, he doesn't know what to do. I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, and I have a generic piece of advice, you know, that's very wise, I'm sure, something about how, oh, you don't have to say the right thing. I don't, I mean, that's true, but whatever it was. It was actually my other friend who had the real great thing. He just says, have you ever given blood? No, they always need blood. He probably needs blood, so why don't you do that? This guy has given blood, like, an incredible amount of times. It's like the thing that he does. So he says, why don't you go? I'll come with you. And I'm like, I'll come too. <laughs> that sounds good. I think I actually used the line, they bleed, we bleed too. Which is an incredible description of solidarity. Right? And I have never met this person. And yet my friend is able to stand in solidarity with him and me stand in solidarity with all of them with a simple act and the act of trying to find ways to stand in solidarity with people in their distress is amazing because it opens up our imagination. And I love, sorry, this is a rainbow every time I say imagination. Imagination is a beautiful thing. And you can just like, you can delve into it and find new and incredible and beautiful ways to stand by people in their distress. I think a posture of blessing comes down to standing beside others. You know, this church makes it a priority to put compassion at the head. I would never say we should do less, and I will always say we can do more. It's an important part of Christ's mission for justice, for peacemaking. What I'm suggesting is that there is a greater reality that within the kingdom of God to actually stand with people is a even greater aspect of blessing, to say we are here, we are with you. Cultivating a lifestyle of blessing others can't ignore this. So thank you for coming, and God bless. Thank you.